The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a pioneering and world-leading storage developer and now energy storage solution provider. We are entering a new era, the electrification of everything. And the grid needs to catch up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES Energy Storage is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advanceon. Advanceon is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure. AES brings 30 years of power sector experience to the storage industry, delivering the most reliable, safest, and best-performing storage solutions. Advanceon can handle any application, and it's always instantly available, without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. This is The Interchange, a weekly conversation on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Shale is in The Hague this week, plotting GTM Research's global domination one bar chart at a time. He'll be back next week. Me, I just got back from Chicago, where I had the chance to interview someone who I've been wanting to talk to for a long time, Mary Powell, the president and CEO of Green Mountain Power. Mary Powell is definitely not your typical utility executive. Since becoming CEO of Green Mountain Power in 2008, she has turned the corporate culture on its head and made Vermont's biggest utility into a startup in many ways. We talked on stage at the Clean Energy Trust Challenge, a business plan competition organized by the Clean Energy Trust in Chicago. Shout out to the folks at the Trust who put together a fine event, and a big shout out to the entrepreneurs who pitched their companies. These were not your stereotypical founders who think an app is going to solve everyone's problems. These were folks developing new water purification methods, crop monitoring capabilities, grid switching hardware, and a whole host of other tech. So I was sitting there in front of a bunch of startups and investors with Mary Powell, and I explained that she was like a kindred spirit to the folks in the crowd. So as I said, she's applied many of the startup principles that make young companies creative. She's unrelenting in her desire to engage directly with customers. She actually talks to customers to spark new ideas and employees and getting them interacting in different ways building new products, and reimagining the power delivery business model itself. She used to call Green Mountain Power the unutility, but now she tries not to use the word utility at all. So this was one of my favorite conversations in recent memory. Let us know what you think. Tweet at me or Mary herself. You can find her at Mary G. Powell on Twitter. And without further ado, here's Mary starting off talking about why she doesn't even describe Green Mountain Power as a utility. And why do I say that? I, I, you know, a part of it is honestly, I, I, was, oh, I was listening in on our COO was talking to a team that came up that wanted to understand more about our innovation that we're doing. And because uh, again, what we're doing is viewed as incredibly provocative in the space in which we operate, though to us, it feels like common sense, to tell you the truth. Um, it really is about accelerating a consumer red consumer-led revolution uh, to distributed generation and energy independence. And that's really what we're all about. So we're really envisioning a future where uh, we move to having the bulk power system move to the backup system and the primary system be a community home and business-based energy system. So we think of ourselves as an energy transformation company. Uh, what that means in, in being the unutility, kind of where it started, was creating a company that uh, was fast, fun, and effective, creating a company that had a culture of yes, not a culture of no. Um, this industry uh, that has been around an incredibly long time has an amazing amount of uh, bureaucracy and uh, I would say 
wax buildup, and we really believe ultimately in the line that culture eats strategy. We believe culture eats strategy for, I think the original line was culture eats strategy for breakfast, and as I like to say, we believe it eats it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So our transformation really started with a cultural revolution within Green Mountain Power. So what does that mean exactly? How does that impact the way that you hire folks, mm -hmm. uh, the talent pool that you're reaching out to? I understand that it really did actually impact who you were looking to employ at Green Mountain Power. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So it really started with, again, a dramatic cultural revolution. Um, what did that look like? I, it's kind of famous that I turned down the job of working for Green Mountain Power three times. Um, I obviously finally accepted it, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm pleased to say I was wrong, and it's been a great and an amazing opportunity to you be there. You accepted it, and then you said, I'm going to dismantle this place from the... <laughs> kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind of. I actually was, you know, you need a catalyst, and so what happened is, you know, I accepted it, and then a few weeks later, and it was funny, because when I was interviewing and talking to them, they had this, like, request for this really big rate increase, and I just, I mean, kind of... I was just sort of, I had a natural disdain for the industry a little bit, to tell you the truth. Um, I did. Um, and so I, I sort of couldn't understand how they could be thinking they were going to get this big increase. And they were very, very confident they weren't. So the short story is they didn't. <laughs> and the short story is it became, uh, pain is the touchstone of, of a lot of tremendous changes that can happen in life. I firmly believe that. And the same is true for organizational pain. And so the organizational pain became the catalyst for this revolution that I was able to launch. And so the best way to describe it is when I interviewed, you know, like a lot of uh, utilities that you would walk into today, it was a nice big lobby, uh, big set of stone staircase, stone, stone staircase you had to go up actually to get to the CEO's office. You had to get through actually kind of two private secretaries to get into his office. You got into his office. It was really big. It had a private bathroom. It had a private conference room. But the most important thing is he never had to see a customer or a real employee all day long. Um, so just glassed in. Glassed in. Glassed in. Um, and it wasn't just him. It was really pretty much the whole leadership approach and, and culture. And so the best way to describe, you know, then and now is sort of, you know, what does cultural revolution looks, look like? Well, it looked like we had half the people working because I am actually a firm believer in lean cultures. Um, it's where I started in life in my career. It, I believe that uh, in a lean metabolism is most effective for us as human beings, and that is absolutely true in organizations. I think the biggest mistake in this industry is, I would say, most utilities have at least twice as many human beings as they need. And why is that a problem? Uh, it's a problem because, by definition, we all like to go to work and add value. So if you have twice as many it, it, we're not necessarily adding value in ways that are customer obsessed. We're adding value in ways that sometimes add bureaucracy, sometimes add complexity, sometimes add in this business a ton of unnecessary analysis. Um, so really the cultural revolution looked like if you stop by to see me today, I work in what I would call a building that looks like it was a, a revamped service center. So we got rid of a separate corporate headquarters. We work in a revamped service center. Um, I work at a stand-up desk in what looks like a colorful Costco. So it's high ceiling. Um, I work, uh, you know, about this far from where the linemen come in every day in the morning and where they come in at the end of the day to their docking stations. It is a completely open office environment. There are no private offices. There are no private conference rooms. Um, and it is really one where we work really hard on being customer obsessed, fast, fun, and effective. So I, we could not be doing the work we're doing today in the innovation space for customers if it were not built on the backbone of this cultural revolution. Yeah, that, that was what I was gonna ask next. How has that actually impacted the work? Have you come up with new ideas or heard from different people within the company that have sparked new ideas for you or your team? Um, what has been the material impact of those changes? Yeah, I mean, the first material impact of those changes were we were able to take a uh, company that I have to say was performing well for the industry. 
So let's just be clear about that. They might have needed a big rate and increase. a company that was much smaller when you yeah, first took it over, Yeah, much right? smaller. Yeah, yeah, about a quarter of the size of the that size. we are now. Um, so, yeah, so much smaller, but it was, it was performing well. But we went from performing well to a company that, on the basics, you know, we're serving customers that have about 93% satisfaction in us, about 92% trust in the organization, we have some of the best statistics from, you know, the again bread and butter things like call center statistics, reliability statistics, how fast we get customers back on. So we're we're making sure that we're covering all of the basis um, bases, and we're doing it again in this very lean operating model. That then, to your point. Um, really has created an organization where we also really focused on delayering the organization dramatically. So when I talk about uh, utilities needing to be half the size they are, um, I'm not talking about the front line. In fact, in our case, when we acquired the utility that was much larger than us, we didn't achieve any synergies in the front line. In fact, I added to the front line we actually added linemen. We actually added call center folks. We added people that customers actually care about. We delayered and subtracted everything possible above them. So back to the culture of innovation, back to you know, the fact we were the first utility I know of to offer an off-grid package, that came from one of our frontline employees, actually, that was working on a project to bring, uh, to rebuild a line to the state park in Vermont. And she said, well, why are we doing this? Why don't we just tear it down and, and supply their service off grid? And we said, what a brilliant idea. And we did it. And then we said, well, for doing that, why don't we offer off grid, you know, as an option to any customer? Because we're really in the mindset of energy as a service and energy transformation. And so that was in 2015 when you started yep. partnering with Tesla, right? Yes. And how has that gone thus far? Really well. That was I mean, the first time a utility had done that, right? Yeah, yeah. No, and, I actually, because um, again, we do a lot of these things because to us, they're just obvious and intuitive because we're trying to think past where how we serve customers today. We try to always actually look at what we do today with a little bit of disdain, not in the context of of being unnecessarily harsh on ourselves, but being but having it in the context of how do we think past what they say they want? How do we think about moving into a future that would delight them by, by providing things they may not even be thinking about today? And so to me, it was the minute, I don't know, I caught word that Tesla was working on this Powerwall thing from uh, a, a young engineer that I work with. And so we, I kind of knew of somebody who worked there and we got in touch and we got involved and we were, you know, it was so obvious to us that we wanted to offer these to our customers, to Vermonters. And I'll never forget when I went out to the Shingding in LA, I wasn't even going to go because I thought, oh, well, you know, there's going to be hundreds of people partnering on these things. This is and the then, launch party. The launch, yeah. yeah. And they were like, no, 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 you, you really need to be here. And so I went and it was nice because I got to chat with Elon Musk and have my own time with him and the rest of it. But, but what was actually really stunning was it was then I found out that we were actually the only utility in the country that had gone ahead and partnered with them. So again, I think it's back to culture because we have a culture of yes. We have a culture of let's try that. We have a culture of being fast implementers. We're not large enough to have an R&D department. To We're not going to be the ones to come up with this next amazing invention in energy technologies. How we see ourselves is customer obsessed and we're able to fast implement and deliver you know, innovative products and services. Did Elon say anything in that conversation that uh, made you want to go ahead with this? That, was there anything interesting in that conversation that, um, you know? No, what I thought was you? most, I, what I found most interesting and what I think has, we're, we have another uh, uh, really big announcement coming up with them on Thursday, actually. Um, I think the most interesting thing was uh, really for me, uh, seeing Vermont as such an incredible opportunity to 
fulfill the kind of vision that he talks about. So that's actually what we talked about. I, I actually think rural America is somebody who came from Manhattan and came from a really densely populated, complex infrastructure environment. I really believe rural America is poised to lead the energy revolution um, because we are different, because uh, it, is, it is also from a reliability and a resilience perspective, it is really intuitive to say that the bulk system, the system, the Fred Flintstone system that's been around 130 plus years, the twigs and twine system, because that's what it comes down to when those big storms move in and you're in rural America. I don't care how much storm hardening you do. That system, that Fred Flintstone system, is twigs and twine. And that's what happens. So for us, it's more resilient. It's more reliable. It's about how do we lead in a completely different energy system delivery. So that's what he, he and I talked about. And, and you make money off of those storage systems just through lease payments? or And, and first of all, are, do the economics work out for you as a utility? And you know, a lot of utilities would be worried about consumers cutting themselves off from the grid or defecting a lot oh, yeah, of load. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't so seem to worry so, you at all. Um, I mean, everybody should be worried. I'm worried all the time. But you're I mean, I'm naturally it. paranoid. So. Right, you're naturally paranoid. <laughs> I which love is that book, Only the Paranoid <laughs> Succeed. So, so I, I believe in paranoia, actually. I love it. I embrace it. Um, you know, it is, it is just, a, it's a different lens of how you look at it. So, so um, you know, I had our team about a year and a half ago. I saw an NREL study that, that talked about, you know, over the next decade, how many Americans could be, how, how many American homes and businesses could be self-supplying. And so I said, I said, let's just do like this dramatic scenario. Let's do this dramatic scenario that over the next decade, we lose 40% of our traditional revenue. Um, what does that look like in terms of how we can optimize transformation to bring down the amount of revenue we need? Because a huge part of a utility's revenue is power supply, grid costs, blah, 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 right? So how can we think about using every asset that's coming online in a way to drive down that cost? And how can we earn our way into new value propositions, right? So the end of the exercise just showed that there's no freaking silver bullet. <laughs> like there's no obvious, obvious way. And, and in many ways, that's heartening to somebody like me because I actually also believe one of the biggest mistakes we can make is bet too hard on any one specific technology that's available today. I think a huge part of creating a culture that each strategy is one that's incredibly nimble. Um, you know, so five years ago or eight years ago when we were the first utility in the country that was actually providing a tariff to encourage customers to go solar, you know, did we know we'd be partnering with Tesla? No. Do I, do I know today what the partnerships are going to be five years from now? Absolutely not. But I can tell you one thing. There's going to be new and exciting partnerships. So, so that's the kind of framework. And then back to your point about how do the economics work, we work really hard on figuring out how we can earn our way into a new value proposition. Because none of this is monopoly provided, right? So none of this is you have to work with us, right? We're, we're really... Uh, as part of being a B Corp, we're about building a lot of, of economic drivers around us. Um, but it is about how can we be in that space so that as we're creating new relationships, we're using those assets to drive down the cost of the grid, and we're using any new revenues that are coming in to help pay for the mothership of taking care of poles and wires, traditional system, and the new system. And by driving down the cost of the grid, you're saying that you're deferring infrastructure upgrades, basically? Because um, the traditional utility argument is that if people use solar and storage to leave, leave the grid or to defect load, the rest of the customers are subsidizing those customers and they have to pay more for the grid. Right, and, I, and that, I call that sloppy thinking. I, I, so I, I, I think that is classic thinking uh, that happens in industries, and again, I've had the chance to work in a couple of them, like banking, that can very easily get into protect, preserve, and defend, instead of how do I try to think past? So we have no silver bullets, but we're trying to think past. That's what that's what we do. So back to your back to your question. I guess I want to just start with one fact that I think is really important as we think about the future in energy. Um, it's one of the ones back to paranoia that worries me the most, not for us, not for Green Mountain Power, actually, for society, um, which is this, which is 
The bulk system, as we know it today, is about 40 to 43% economically efficient on a good day, okay? And we have, throughout much of the country right now, New England is a great example of this. There are some exceptions to this, but we have huge swaths of the country, a lot of rural America, where loads are actually very flat, okay? So there's efficiency happening, there's the ability to use distributed generation, there's innovation going on. So one could say, even under the best of scenarios, loads stay flat. Some would say, I would argue, I actually think five to 10 years, we're gonna see loads decline significantly in parts of the country. So you have that, and at the same time, you have an industry that spent the most amount it's ever spent in the entire history of the United States of America, we spent over $10 billion on transmission infrastructure last year, okay? So you have this Dilbert, I think, classic Dilbert of, you have the infrastructure cost is continuing to go up, the delivery system, which already on a good day is not that economically efficient, and you don't have inherent increasing load. In, in, in. So, so again, you know, one of my favorite lines about risk is, um, there is no such thing as the elimination of risk. You're making choices and you're moving risk from one place to another. Every choice you make, you're moving, you're creating a new risk or you're moving risk somewhere else. So, so our philosophy is, again, how do we, we are trying to lead now in actually moving, trying to push tens of millions of dollars of future cost of the grid I hate to say this if there's anybody here from Massachusetts, Connecticut, or New Hampshire, or Maine, but we're actually trying to, through storage, we're going to probably be flattening our peak by about a couple hundred megawatts a year and shifting a ton of costs that we have to pay to the regional grid to the rest of the regional grid providers. So it's how do we, how do we think about, so back to your question, right? We're using individual Tesla power walls to do that. We're using a, a, a solar storage project that we did in Rutland. Uh, one of its first of its kind to do that. We're, we're aggregating the Stafford behind, Hill yeah, Stafford Hill. Yeah. We're aggregating behind the meter resources with grid resources to try to again lead in this radical transformation to a community home and business-based system. Okay, so if we now have a picture of what success might look like, that's a, a delighted customer, a customer who feels mm -hmm. connected to the utility, lower infrastructure costs, a healthy mix of centralized and distributed resources, people with choice. What does failure look like? Have you modeled out what kind of troubles you might face or yeah. ultimately what a failed strategy would look like? I mean, failed strategy is when you're harming the socioeconomic well-being around you versus benefiting it. So, I, so to me, it's, it's very obvious. It's very clear what success looks like. Um, you know, success, one of the hard things for us right now is we realize we need, we need a rate adjustment, you know. Um, not huge for this industry, probably about 4%. Um, we've, we've already lowered bills three times in the last four years. We've delivered rate decreases through our work. But our vision of the future is how do we never have to raise rates and how do we provide a completely indifferent, low carbon, low cost, incredibly reliable energy system to the customers we serve? So, um, you know, so at, at the heart of it, customer obsession looks like, you know, success is obvious, which is you're not raising rates, you're providing transformation, um, and you're, you're connecting everything you do in the context of stacking benefits uh, for the communities that you serve. So that's, so, so failure, Failure looks like defending status quo, defending large increases. Um, failure looks like, uh, you know, building things that Vermonters don't want. Um, so, yeah, it's very easy to see what failure and success looks like in my mind. So when you go to, um, let's say, a Nehru conference or something, and you talk to other utility CEOs, let's say... Southern Company CEO Tom Fanning, who recently went on television and said that he doesn't believe CO2 is a contributor to mm. climate change. Um, what kind of conversations are you having with folks like that who have you know, embraced the need for change, but I think are fairly conservative, particularly mm -hmm. you know, conservative when it comes to culture change, mm -hmm. especially compared to what you're espousing right. here? Um, right. What kind of conversations are you having with uh, your, you know, your fellow CEOs in the power industry? You know, I don't have that many, really, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and, and 
um, one, I haven't actually gone to a lot of those things over, you know, I've actually been in this space a long time now. And um, you're in Vermont talking to customers. Yeah, I'm mostly no. in Vermont talking to, I mean, that, that was actually one of the things to tell you the truth. I mean, it's when I came to this industry that really, like, really struck me in a negative way was just how much time and money people spend going to those meetings and how much comes out of them, right? So I was always just trying to balance investment of time versus value. And, and honestly, also, as, as a, I, I always felt sort of naturally a little bit like an outcast, which I didn't mind. I mean, I'm in Vermont. Vermont is seen as so different. I mean, I know that because I grew up in, in Manhattan, right? So I, you know, I, I think how a utility leader from like a major urban area would view me and what we're doing um, I know that because I, I, I've, I've been with folks on that other side of the lens. So, so I, and I don't mean that in a way of, of being concerned about it. I mean it just in a very factual way that it, it, it hasn't necessarily been where I've been able to create the greatest partnerships or momentum or ideas from. So that said, I think there's some amazing stuff that goes on in our industry. And so I do try to go to maybe one thing a year you know, so that I'm connecting, so I'm hearing. Because I think, again, our specialty is we're, we're actually the implementers. One of the lines I love about innovation is good ideas are a dime a dozen. It's actually implementation that's rare. It's implementation and execution. So one of the things I love about going to some of those meetings is hearing some of the cool pet projects that are going on and then saying, oh my gosh, how do we actually take that but really go mainstream with it? Like actually really use it so it's not a kind of professional playground, but it's actually meaningful systemic customer offerings and change. So, um, you know, and I, I have been asked to speak at different meetings about what we're doing and I do that. Uh, you know, sometimes actually speaking of Nehruk, it was, it was at a Nehruk meeting. I'll never forget it. I talked about all of this and it was actually a regulator from New Jersey, who stood up and said, <laughs> let's just remember one thing. <laughs> Vermont is the size of one small town in New Jersey. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> you do a very good regulator impression, too. <laughs> well, I was just, you know, so, so that's sometimes the, the response I've gotten, right? Which is not interest or how can we apply it, but sort of how do we say it doesn't. So that's what I was talking about. We kind of have this, we've tried to create this culture of yes, and I'm, I'm grateful. We actually have had some amazing regulators in the state of Vermont who are, I think, very forward-thinking. Because again, you can't do this work alone. It has to be in combination with all the stakeholders that also care just as deeply as you do about your customers. Okay, so I want to open up the floor for some questions very shortly. I do have one more question, though, and that is about interacting with your customers. One of the things that you have, I think, applied from the world of startups is to really listen to your customers, figure out what they want. Um, you know, this Tesla Powerwall uh, project was an example of that. The redesign of your bill is another example of that. What kind of specific conversations are you having with your customers? What kind of questions are you asking them? And, and what have they told you that's made you reevaluate the products or services that you've provided them? So great question, because I actually think that's so key to being customer obsessed and so key to uh, building the kind of culture that I think Vermonters value. So again, that office, the office space that I talked about is really at the end of the day about avoiding, I think the biggest um, uh, challenge that can happen for people in leadership. And it's not necessarily even in my position, it's sort of anybody who's in leadership, which is there's this natural organizational push towards disconnection disconnection from the front line, disconnection from customers. So I really go about, I, I do strategic, I call it strategic block scheduling in my calendar. So I block out the entire year. I make sure that every single week I'm meeting with customers and every single week I'm meeting with small groups 
of folks that work on the GMP team. So I'm literally all over the state of Vermont. I don't think I've ever heard that a utility CEO say that. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, think, I, I mean, it's I, remarkable. I don't it's, know it's, how it's, else it's, you stay in touch with reality. You know, that's, that's, I mean, one of my biggest fears again is I, is, is being out of touch with reality, right? Of being out of touch with what people really want and what really matters to people. And, and I love people actually. So that's a huge part of it too, is, is it actually also enriches my life. Um, and I think makes me better at what I do, but yeah, I meet with customers every week and I don't, and what do they I don't, tell you? um, all sorts of things. Cause I'll meet with like, by the way, I don't just go to like the top 100 customers. Those are important, but you know, I've done collections. You know, I've talked to customers that are having a hard time paying their bill. I go into gas stations and I talk to customers, you know. So what they tell me is kind of where I think we circle to a couple times or, or what you said, what does failure look like? What they tell me is they're, they're, Vermonters, they care about the environment. They care about, they love some of the transformation stuff, but you know what? They need our help in keeping costs low. So one of the biggest things they do and one of the sweet spots we've found over and over again in this energy transformation work, I was just at a big uh, uh, marble quarry, right? Is we actually think we might be able to do like a really cool like storage, solar, you know, uh, a whole little project with them, right? To bring energy transformation, to bring them increased reliability, to have a long-term sort of sustainable approach from a cost perspective. So, so at the end of the day, you know, they, 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 and they want to feel loved. I think, I think at the end of the day, um, we don't in business uh, or in what we do, or when we think about innovation, um, we don't talk enough about love and how, how what we can do can help transform uh, lives and impact society in a good way. I've heard you use that word a number of times speaking. You use the word love and compassion and, you know, care for your customers. Mm -hmm. uh, that is extraordinarily unique in, mm -hmm. in this space. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I think it's a testament to what you're doing. And how do you integrate that, that feeling about the customer into what you do broadly? And when you work with your staff, for example, yeah. I mean, do you do you do your, does your staff share those values? How do you pass that along? Well, they, I mean, we do these, these uh, weekly reports to each other. So there's about 15 of us every single week, and I write a report. And they, they, they say there's probably a week, it's probably rare to see a week go by that I don't talk about love in my report. So, so I hit it a lot, it, just because I think, like many things, if, if, if you're not thinking about it, it's easy you know, particularly with the stresses and strains of, you know, running a business, et cetera, it's easy to, it's easy to actually get locked actually into the opposite, which is to feeling it, it that you're at war with stakeholders or whatever. Or that your so customer a, is a rate right, payer. Right, exactly. Oh, yeah, I can't even stand <laughs> that. Oh, my gosh, or a meter. Ooh, huh. Like, right, when did right. we ever, where, where did we ever think that was an appropriate way to think about what the core of what we're doing because we're in a business that at the at the end of the day i mean this is like a life support business this is the this is this is the one of the most important core businesses in the context of people's lives and their businesses right so so to me, yeah, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. We also really believe, you know, because I, I, part of it is your orientation because, you know, I use the term again a lot, love wins. And I don't mean it in like a competitive sense, like you're coming at solving it with hate and I'm coming at it with love and love's going to win. It wins because it changes us. It wins because it changes my orientation and it opens up my thinking uh, to solutions and um, you know and that that is a huge part of how we think about innovation we'd like to take a moment to extend a big thank you to our sponsor AES energy storage AES energy storage is a world-leading provider of grid scale battery storage projects AES corporation owns 36 billion dollars in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide 10 years ago AES set up its battery business since then, the cost of installing grid-scale batteries has dropped nearly 90%, thanks to more efficient installation techniques, lower-cost hardware, and better lithium-ion batteries. This same trend took hold in the computer industry, where rapidly declining data storage costs revolutionized our digital networks. Lithium-ion batteries are now bringing data networks' resiliency and responsiveness to the electricity network by enabling multiple hours of storage. The grid is changing. Fast. 
and AES Energy Storage is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electric power system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable. Visit aesenergystorage.com slash interchange to learn more. That's aesenergystorage.com slash interchange. Let's get some questions. I think we have uh, you know, time for a few, few good ones. So what would you like to know from Mary Powell? From a business perspective, how are you four times bigger if you're located in such a small state? Great question. Yeah, we're four times bigger. We're still tiny. So I always, I always uh, like to remind folks of that because, again, we're still, at the end of the day, the second smallest investor-owned utility, I think, in the country um, because Vermont as a whole is about 620,000 uh, uh, residents. So we accomplished that through acquiring Vermont's largest utility. That was where we saw the most significant growth in the context of the customers that we serve. And then again, you know, that too, I think at the end of the day, the success of that, honestly, was because of our love of Vermonters and our wanting to contribute from a socioeconomic perspective to the, to the viability of Vermont, which is a very small state and doesn't have that many opportunities to try to drive down cost. And so one of the commitments I'm so excited about is we committed to uh, achieve $144 million of savings for Vermonters through that. And we actually are on path now to have generated about 175 to $180 million of value for Vermonters. So again, a huge, and again, that was in the context we talked about, like loving our customers, loving Vermont, not, you know, I talked a lot about culture strategy, like having these two large utilities doing the exact same thing for 600,000 Vermonters, um, when really you just needed the same number of linemen and, and call center reps. You didn't need, you didn't need all of those that were interfering with them above them. So that was the big jump in growth. Hi, ex excellent panel. I, I really enjoyed it. What's the next big thing you want to do for your company? Or have your company, I guess, do for your customers from your perspective? What's, what's your next big accomplishment? Well, I think that, you know, I feel like kind of what I talked about is pretty big, which is, which is leading the revolution to a home business and community-based energy system. So, um, you know, and we're serious about that. We're all in on that. I mean, we're a, we're a, 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 a company that, you know, our peak is about 760 megawatts and through storage, through distributed generation, through creating these new energy systems, we're hoping to, we're hoping to flatten that, or not hoping, we're, we're headed towards flattening that over the next three years to about 600 year round. So again, that, that would be the most dramatic transformation I've heard of um, in this space. So it's a lot of it is through leveraging storage, but a lot of it is also leveraging the fact that because we led back in 2008 with leading in solar uh, and encouraging customers to go solar, we have the highest level of solar penetration of any state in the country except for Hawaii. So yeah, so it's really complete this complete transformation of the energy system, which feels pretty big to me. Let me let me ask ask that question another way, which is um, what is the biggest technological change that you see happening that will help usher in that change. So is it going to be battery storage? Um, will it be demand side management? The, you don't like that term. Are you, wow, I've never seen anyone like almost throw up by, the, by hearing demand side management. Um, I, uh, I, 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 so, so let me just because it's one of the things that drives me crazy in this uncustomer obsessed industry. Because to me, it's like, actually, I was having a great chat about this at lunch. Like, it's this view that, that the way to achieve greatness is to shame customers, make customers manage energy more. So I believe in it, but I actually believe it's in our role to innovate past that and to do it in a way where we're we're, we are the conductor of this symphony of resources so that actually what we do is we give you as the customer, whether you're a business or a residential customer, we give you freedom and we make you, and you feel great and you just have systems and you have energy. So that's why I gag it. Yeah, no, I, I actually really appreciate that because I don't think I've ever heard 
a utility executive stand up and say that. Well, and it's we, just sort and of a given. It, but it's that, sort of like it's our job, and I feel like what the industry has done is tried to make it like your job, and then we create these carrots and sticks, and there's this great Dan Pink video, if you haven't seen it, about sort of uh, upending, which I just firmly believe in, I did a long time ago, upending the whole way Americans think about incentive systems and what they do. So it's just this, it's this, it's this kind of like dinosaur age thinking about carrots and sticks and we should fit, of course we have to make this system more efficient. I said it's about 40% economically efficient. We have to make it as close to 100 as we can. So yes, a part of that is, is the, the principles of dis, demand side management. It's not how we think about it today though. It's actually leapfrogging past and providing that for yeah. customers. It, it might be a little bit too much to bite off toward the end of this conversation, but it does get us into this broader discussion about whether what kind of pricing mechanisms we use to get consumers to meet changing conditions on the grid, not just in terms of reducing demand, but um, cycling storage, mm -hmm. uh, consuming their own solar. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of things that you can get customers to do with the right rate designs or the right signals. And so I just don't come at it from the approach of the minute you say get customers to do, you right. lose me, right? right. It's, more, it's more how do we innovate past so they might be doing all those things, or hopefully they are, but it's because we're making their lives better, easier, more affordable. We're not getting them to do this. So it's a, just a different way of well, thinking. Yeah, and I mean, from yeah. what I've seen, I think right. in the, most customers don't really respond respond as well right. as people no, would they like don't. to those dynamic no, they don't. rates. They, they do what most of society and does with incentives, which is there's a period of response and yeah. then it drops off because it's inconvenient, people are busy, it's not the most important thing in their lives. Yeah, it's a really important discussion to be yeah. having. Um, any other questions? Hi, thanks so much for being here today. Um, how do you evaluate risk on these new companies that you're wanting to bring on, their new innovative platforms or programs? when they're maybe not an Elon Musk and Tesla that's so well-known and so game-changing, when there's this small idea that's coming on, but you think it might have a good platform for your own company? Yeah, so we are a culture of yes. So actually, thank you so much for that question because I forgot to mention one of the things that I'm really so proud of that we did is we actually created uh, in our space where we work, innovators space. And so if any of the innovators here are interested in uh, free space and resources and data, uh, in the energy world and want to come to work with us in Vermont, just let me know because we want you and we're already working with a bunch of amazing entrepreneurs. Um, preferably, we also look at it from a socioeconomic perspective, so we are interested in attracting uh, folks and entrepreneurs from other states. So we've got some from Brooklyn and a lot of different places. So um, so we'll, we're basically open for business with just about any you know, uh, innovator, right? That we think we can apply what they're doing to what we're doing. Um, and then that said, you know, obviously, even if it's anywhere from Tesla, we were chatting about this before, or Aquion or Sonnen battery, you know, you always have to look at it in the context of, okay, what could go wrong? And what's the worst case possibility of what could go wrong? And then how do you like add another 20% on that you don't know about what could go wrong? So, so you look at that and then you have to, you know, when you're, when you're fast implementing, you know, you have to obviously bound it with just sort of, uh, you know, this, you know, we're willing to go this size now. And then, you know, you have your metrics and your hurdles you have to hit. We're a deeply measured company, I should add. We have a company-wide meeting every Monday morning at 7 a.m. That's a huge part of our culture. Uh, we have about 70 metrics. We measure every single week. On Monday morning, we look at those metrics. So uh, as a full-on company. So, uh, you know, so again, you have to, yeah, you have to have bounds. You have to have guardrails. Um, and you have to, you know, the other piece in innovation, I know all of you know this, and I've, I've been, I've, I've started two businesses of my own in my career, one that my husband still runs. Um, you know, you have to know sunrise, sunset is really important. You know, you got to sunrise ideas fast, you got to implement them fast, and you got to not be scared to sunset them if dynamics change or your metrics don't show. So don't fall so in love with your idea <laughs> that you just keep, you know, uh, keep going when you know you shouldn't. Have there been any examples where you've had to let go of an idea that you can think of? Big examples? No. All the time, though, I feel like. Do you know what I mean? I, you know, or you're again, kind of throwing ideas right, out of the meeting. Throwing and ideas, or we start down something and we stop. 
nothing really huge comes to mind, but I feel like I, I know it's happened so many times, right? Where you think something seems like such a good idea and then you have to just sunset it or not, or, you know, and sometimes we get, you know, back to demand side management, you know, just yeah. sort of like working on this, you know, these rates and, you know, uh, the idea that customers are all going to port or something so that they can manage it more themselves to save five bucks a month and, you know. I'm never going to be able to say right. demand side management now <laughs> without having your disgusted fit, like you're, you're just a little <laughs> in the back of my head, knowing. <laughs> um, uh, so any other questions? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> First of all, thanks for the great panel. Um, I had a simple question. What would you suggest to jurisdictions uh, and utilities outside of Vermont to really evolve and uh, move a little bit, maybe towards your direction or towards a more customer-centric direction? Um, you know, I always get cautious about, you know, and again, back to sort of your broader question about the community, I don't mean to be dismissive of what others are doing in other states because, you know, the United States is very different in different parts of the United States, and it's very important to understand what your customers want. We are delivering, we are customer obsessed. That is the touchstone of all of it, and we are delivering on what Vermonters want. We poll them constantly. We survey them constantly. We're always making sure that we're aligned with them. So the starting point, wherever you are, is tap in to not just like what they think about you, like kind of who cares what they think about you. I mean, you do care, but it's kind of what do they care about? What are their values? How do you kind of lean into that and move forward? So the, one of the biggest things I felt like I brought Green Mountain Power when I first came and led that cultural revolution was I had actually worked in government for a few years in uh, in Vermont and I brought this like cultural revolution in how we thought about the regulators because it was very much it was all lawyers talk to lawyers and it was this big scary everybody built walls instead of like they're actually people who care about customers just as much as we do if not more back then in terms of how Green Mountain Power was. So it's really about how do you, again, how do you love your regulators? How do you build real and meaningful relationships and connections, but all around what customers want? Because at the end of the day, if you're delivering in any business model you're in, I mean, I've just firmly, that's why I also, I believe in love because it feels so much better as a way of doing business, but I also believe in it because I believe it spawns success. Because if you, if you go about it that way, um, you create this virtuous circle where then your, your customers love you, and then that informs others who are important stakeholders to your business. So I would say my biggest advice is love, 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 and get customer obsessed. Um, I would like to hear a little bit more advice for some of the startups in this room, maybe those who are working in the electric power sector. Um, are there any ideas that come across your desk or the desks of your staff that are particularly appealing in the way that um, they're structured or particularly appalling in the way that they're pitched? Um, are there, you know, what, what is compelling to you about the way... Simplification. So I think one of the, one of the mistakes I see in this space... Um, with entrepreneurs and with some of the innovators we've partnered with is, um, we were chatting about this. It's, it was a big aha for me when I realized like a few months in, like, guess what? This industry's not as complicated as they like to make themselves sound. <laughs> like it's Don't actually- Don't tell them that because we'll be out of jobs. It's not complicated. <laughs> it's not that complicated. And one of the mistakes I see with entrepreneurs is they feel like they, they get lost in that jargon and complexity. And, let, and I, I really believe sort of the beauty in innovation and creativity is simplicity. And so, and in messaging is simplicity and back to again, you know, customer obsession, incredible value proposition that you're going to hit. So that would be my advice. Do you have any interesting RFPs coming up or programs that you're putting together that we should know about? Um, you know, RFP, I don't remember the last time we did an RFP. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really us. 
we kind of, I mean, again, we, you know, I, you know, we're doing some really interesting stuff, as I, as I mentioned, you know, watch the news on Thursday, there'll be some, uh, Elon will probably be tweeting, but there'll be some, some news of, of new and innovative work we're going to be doing with them. Um, you know, but we're doing that kind of work and we're all, we're working with backyard organizations like this company called Packetized Energy out of UVM in Vermont. Um, so we're playing in a lot of different spaces, doing a lot of different things. So, so there's a lot more room for experimentation with the Green Mountain Power more. versus many of the other IOUs Absolutely. operating around the country. Absolutely, yep. yeah. And yeah. then you just said that the business was not as complicated as people make it sound. And my first question after that was using RFP and IOU <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I would like to get one more question in before we wrap it up. Yes. Mary, it's so ins inspiring to see a female CEO in this space, and um, I just I love your story. It's very untraditional too that you start out as an artist and worked in banking and government before you came to lead Green Mountain Power. And um, I just wonder if you could give any advice to some of the young people here who are starting their careers out, and you know why should they work in energy, and you know why should they be hopeful maybe when they're seeing some of the discouraging activity at the federal level, like give a little inspiration to folks that are starting on this path in the beginning of their career. Oh, I mean, I think it is, you know, I, I think you heard me say, I think this is, this industry is poised, not poised for, we are, we are seeing a revolution in how we think about energy delivery. And again, I was so excited at lunch to hear about the work being done in Africa around, you know, again, approaching with off-grid. So I think if you care about the environment, if you care about sustainability, if you care about the economy, there is probably no more exciting place to be than somewhere in this space. Um, and, and it needs, you know, I, I think, you know, we talk a lot about glass ceilings. Honestly, I think one of the biggest challenges in this industry is we have a freaking gray ceiling. Like we need youth. We need people who are, you know, well, we do. It's just a sea, uh, you know, it's a, it's a gray ceiling. So it is, you know, when I look, like one of the things I'm most excited about with, with the team is like not by, not on purpose, but it is, it is 50-50 women and men, you know, my team. But it's also, I think the average age of the leadership team is, is somewhere in the 30s now. So again, I think there is a lot, a lot of opportunity. And I would just really strongly encourage, uh, you know, folks definitely to dive in and, you know, be the change you want to see. And, you know, I feel like a huge part of my, of my ability to achieve things was, again, also not getting, not getting too attached to your success, actually get, getting attached to seeing success, you know. So, um, you know, because people ask me a lot about, well, how did you have the courage to do this, that, or the other thing? And I think really on some level it's because I really... I mean, I didn't come from anything in life, I, so I didn't have any sort of like, I knew I could take, I knew I would feed myself. I've always had that because I was feeding myself at an early age. So I always had that confidence that I would do that. So it's about getting attached to the success and the change that you want to see and not getting so wrapped up in yourself. So I think that's the other advice I would give is if you care about if you care about sustainability, if you care about energy, if you care about the economy, it's a great space to be in. We need you. We need new ideas and just get obsessed with what you want to see accomplished, not with what you want to accomplish for yourself. Well, I think that's a really appropriate and inspiring way to end the conversation. Okay. Mary Powell is the president and CEO of Green Mountain Power. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks again to Mary Powell for the thought-provoking conversation and to the Clean Energy Trust for inviting us. If you're a startup or investor tackling the big environmental issues of your time, you can find out more about that organization at cleanenergytrust.org. I'll be on stage again next week at GTM Solar Summit with Lynn Jurich, the CEO of Sunrun, and Abby Hopper, the CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. There will be uh, two good conversations there and many more at the Solar Summit, our 10th Solar Summit um, Shale and I will be taping lots of good stuff coming out of that event. So if you haven't registered, there's still time. Go to greentechmedia.com slash events for more. Or uh, if you're a square, you can listen to the live stream, watch the videos there, see all the panels. And, uh, of course, you can listen on this podcast when we start releasing material. And one last request. If you are enjoying the interchange, please recommend us on social media or send a link to your friends and colleagues. 
or give us a rating and review on iTunes. It's so important for helping us spread the word. Thanks so much. I'm Stephen Lacey for The Interchange, and we are a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next time.